Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 20 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 16th of June. And Leon, we've got a magnificent interview with Tim Buckley this week. That's right. Tim Buckley is the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis, uh, Director of Energy Finance Studies. And he explains why Adani's mega mine does not add up. And he really gives an in-depth look at why its announcement that the board had approved the development was just a PR stunt. So this is really important. Listen to that here. You won't hear it anywhere else. And Saul Eslake is on this week. That's right. And Saul is talking to us all about Australia's growth figures, showing our weaker than expected GDP numbers coming in at one third of one percent. He says growth prospects are not looking that good. OK, so now let's listen to Tim Buckley make bring some clarity to this argument about energy. Tim Buckley, Adani has announced that its board has approved the uh, Megamine and the Galilee Basin and they're all set to go. But there are questions about whether they have the funding in place. So what's your view about this? I think the announcement by Adani this week it was very interesting. And uh, the read you get from the Australian announcement is very different to the read you get by looking at what they told the Bombay Stock Exchange and their investors back in India. So in Australia, it's all gung-ho. They've made a final investment decision. They're ready to proceed. But in India, the board announced that they were waiting on confirmation of the subsidies, and they also announced that they were only really approving some pre-construction activity. In other words, they're really downplaying the importance of the decision. And then we find out the day after they've green-lighted the project, to use their own phrase, that they've deferred the decision to move to financial close to March 2018 and that they're waiting on a NAIF approval. So in other words, they put the gun to the head of the Queensland government and said, unless you give us a $370 million royalty holiday, We're going to walk away from the project. They get the royalty holiday. Then they turn around to Senator Canavan and say, unless you give us the NAIF subsidy, a billion-dollar loan subsidy, we're not going to make a decision. So they actually have this week snuck in a yet another deferral of the financial close to March 2018. And to me, it's all part of the theatre that Adani is making lots of noise, getting lots of concessions, getting massive public subsidies, but they're ultimately unable to get to financial close because I'm not aware of a single private financial institution in the world that said that they actually want to uh, fund this project. So unless they're able to just get entirely public funding, public government subsidised funding for the project, I think the project's going to remain what it's been for the last seven years, which is a major stranded asset. But the issue too, surely, is that, uh, I mean, Dani's carrying a, a fair amount of debt, isn't it? It is. It's on our estimates, the entire Adani family group of companies, and it's a bit of an octopus. It's got four different listed entities. It's got offshore entities. It's got private entities. uh, It's got margin loans against the listed companies. We estimate there's over 15 billion US dollars of net debt across the entire group. So that is in its own right, a major obstacle to getting to financial close on a major greenfield investment here in Australia, because almost all of their assets are back in India 
they don't really have the financial standing in Australia to fund a $5 billion greenfield project from scratch, particularly one which is increasingly unpalatable to global financial institutions who have signed up and agreed to the Paris Climate Agreement. They've agreed that they're not going to facilitate major new developments in thermal coal or thermal power generation. And here's Adani wanting to build arguably the world's largest new thermal coal mine. $15 billion debt. How many sh- how much shareholders funds did the company have? Well, as I mentioned, they've got four different listed entities and then they've got some other private entities as well. So that's the debt we estimate across, consolidated across all of the entities. That sort of order of magnitude is high. It's exceptionally high by Australian standards. It's a little more mainstream and normal in India. But even in India, I think you'd find the Adani Group is one of the most financially indebted conglomerates across the whole country in India. But part of the problem is the debt is not evenly spread. Adani Power has seven and a half billion US dollars of debt. It's got a um, book value of equity of a billion dollars. So its gearing is you know, it's in excess of 10 times debt to equity. Uh, and now admittedly, the, the book value has been declining because they've been losing money now for six of the last seven years. They just reported a record loss of 984 million US dollars in the last 12 months. So Adani Power in particular is in financial distress. And, and the board, ironically, this week of Adani Power announced that their single largest investment is the Mundra coal-fired power plant. It's a 4.6 gigawatt coal-fired power plant. It's one of the biggest in the world. And the board announced that that plant is unviable and that they're looking to potentially sell it if they could find a buyer. So to some degree, it's really interesting timing that they announced the supposed green light for the Carmichael proposal on the same day that a sister company announces that their single biggest asset, a $5 billion 100% import coal-fired power plant is unviable and for sale. And uh, you could argue that one announcement was designed to distract from the other announcement. Indeed. And uh, the Galilee Basin, I mean, that doesn't have any infrastructure there, does it? So uh, you'd be looking at perhaps more than $5 billion to develop the mine. Well, certainly, if you look at the NAIF funding subsidy that Senator Canavan keeps offering very generously that all of Australia should subsidise a foreign billionaire and build him a railway line to open up his coal mine. And Senator Canavan says, no, no, it's a common user facility. I mean, he seems to ignore the fact that it's a common user facility with only one user. And I say that very sarcastically because the railway line might have a 100 million tonne per annum capacity, but it connects solely to the Adani Abbott Point coal terminal. And that coal terminal only has spare capacity of 20 to 25 million tonnes. The Carmichael Stage 1 only has 25 million tonnes of output. So there's no coal export terminal at the end of the railway line that Senator Canavan is offering our money to fund other than capacity for solely the Carmichael proposal. So to my way of thinking, it's a single purpose facility. It's a taxpayer funding of that single purpose facility. And in the absence of that public funding, Adani has made it pretty clear they'll probably walk away from the project. Indeed. And if it becomes a stranded asset, they'd have to sell it, surely. But who would buy a coal mine in the Galilee Basin? Well, exactly. And who would buy a railway line to the Galilee Basin in the absence of demand for low quality thermal coal? 
exports. And so the security that Australian taxpayers are supposedly getting is the railway line. But as you say, if their coal mine is not viable, it closes, then we have security over a railway line to nowhere. And it's got absolutely no other purpose. So here we are providing a subsidy for a railway line. And in fact, when you look at the terms of reference, the mandate of the NAVE, they actually can only make the loan if it is a loan. If it was a straight out grant with no expectation of repayment, their terms of reference should say, and the NAFE is a grantor of subsidies, but it doesn't. It says it's a lender. And the reason why I call it a subsidy is because there's no real capacity for the loan to be repaid if the world actually delivers on its Paris Climate Agreement. And Australia is a signatory to the Paris Climate Agreement because the reason why I stress that is if the Paris Agreement allows the world to stay well below two degrees, that means the demand for thermal coal exports will drop by using the International Energy Agency's estimates by 50% over the next 15 years, 15 or 20 years. So if the market's going to halve in the next one to two decades, you'd have to ask why would the Australian government be wanting to increase supply into a market that's in terminal decline. And indeed, uh, Prime Minister Modi has indicated that India will go full full bore to uh, fulfil the Paris Climate Agreement. Exactly. And he and the Chinese Premier have made it very clear as America goes more isolationist, that is actually opening up an opportunity for India and China to be global leaders and to effectively gain um, dominance globally in industries of the future. And that can be industries of the future from uh, the battery market, the electric vehicle market, the wind market, the solar market, the lithium ion market, all of these new areas of rapid expansion globally. Globally, and India and China are looking to take global leadership of that. And as you mentioned, Prime Minister Modi has been vocal, extremely vocal about wanting India to be the world leader in solar. And uh, it's worth looking at that because the price of solar in India has dropped 50 to 60 percent in the last two years alone. And the price of solar today in India is 20 percent below the cost of domestic coal-fired power generation. So you'd have to ask, why would anyone build a new coal-fired power plant in India if solar is already 20% cheaper. And I think Energy Minister Goyal of India gives the answer that they won't. And indeed, uh, why would anyone in Australia want to build a coal mine to supply India with coal when they're moving to solar? And when the energy minister has repeatedly, for the last three years, repeatedly stated India's objective is to cease thermal coal imports this decade. I mean, it doesn't get any clearer than that. He's not mincing his words and he's saying very, very clearly, India will cease its thermal coal imports this decade. And he's actually gone further than that. The proof is in the delivery. And that's where I would contrast Senator Canavan's word versus Minister Goyal's word, because Minister Goyal has said that by the end of this fiscal year, public sector undertakings of India will cease thermal coal imports this fiscal year. And again, NTPC is the biggest PSU in India. It ceased thermal coal imports last fiscal year. So it's already a year ahead of Goyal's target. And Goyal has made very, very clear First, you'll get the public sector power plants to cease thermal coal imports, and then you'll work on all the private sector power plants. And uh, ultimately, when 
the Mundra power plant that Adani Power owns is unviable. The reason it's unviable is that it is 100% reliant on expensive imported coal. And so the, the other decision that the Adani Power Board announced this week is that they're seeking domestic coal linkages for the Mundra power plant. In other words, they're going to move the Mundra power plant, the 4.6 gigawatt power plant, away from imported coal and towards domestic coal because domestic coal in India is significantly cheaper and that could allow them to restore some level of viability on that project. Now, ultimately, that becomes critical to any decision about the Carmichael coal mine because the Carmichael coal mine is geared to supply the Mundra power plant with imported thermal coal. And yet at the same time, the independent Adani power board is saying they don't want to use imported coal. They can't afford to because they lose money with every unit of electricity they generate when they're using expensive imported coal. So you've got this bizarre situation where Adani Enterprises is supposedly going ahead full steam with the Carmichael mine proposal at the same time as the sister company saying they can't afford to use imported coal. Tim Buckley, look, thank you very much. And that was just fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. So there, Leon, pretty good. I think it's terrific. I think it's a really good analysis of what the problem with Adani is. And I don't know whether this mine will ever get up. Well, if it does, it's going to be a huge problem. See, I mean, most of it, it's going to cost us a lot of money. Adani will get out of it um, with a load of taxpayers' money, and that'll be the end of that. It'll be a stranded asset. Yeah, indeed. And now let's have a chat with Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake, uh, Australia's GDP grew by less than a third of 1%, and uh, our uh, trade has been hit by Cyclone Debbie. What's your outlook for the situation? I think the national accounts released early June are consistent with the idea that Australia's economy is growing at a below-trend pace, and that reflects two important features that have been present for a while. First, Australian household spending is constrained by the combination of weak growth in household incomes in real terms, which is in turn the result of very weak wages growth by historical standards, and the fact that the government's no longer giving tax cuts and welfare handouts as governments routinely did in the first decade of this century, but instead are raising taxes and curtailing welfare benefits. And that's interacting with high levels of household debt to make households much more cautious about spending. That's important because consumer spending represents just over 60% of GDP. So if that's slowing, other bits of GDP have to be doing very well in order to make up the difference. And this is the second point that one other very important area of GDP, business investment, also remains weak. Mining investments continuing to unwind after peaking about five years ago. And that process of unwinding the mining investment booms now pretty close to running its course. But contrary to earlier hopes, non-mining business investment has not stepped up to fill the hole left by the decline in mining investment from its peak. So another of the economy's traditional major engines is still not really firing. In addition, in the March quarter of this year, we 
we had temporary interruptions to resources exports because of the impact of Cyclone Devi on coal shipments. And also wet weather seems to have played a dampening role, no pun intended, on housing construction activity as well, as it did in the September quarter of last year when we had a quarter of negative growth. Some of those factors will unwind in the June quarter, but Overall, the headwinds posed by slow growth in consumer spending and ongoing caution on the part of businesses outside of mining regarding future capital investment are still going to make it difficult for Australia's economy to return to trend growth. And that also means that the unemployment rate and underemployment are likely to remain more pervasive than the government or the Reserve Bank would like. A lot was said about the impact of Cyclone Debbie. And what, what what's the prospect, though, of there being the economy picking up. I mean, I noticed that John Fraser was saying last week or the other week that the economy would pick up to 3% growth. I mean, what's your view about that? Well, Cyclone Debbie came right at the end of the March quarter, and you can see its impact in the falling off in coal exports in particular and correspondingly a build-up of inventories of mining products, presumably coal, as coal that would ordinarily have been shipped out instead sat on the wharfs. That will have been unwound during the June quarter. We also saw how retail sales were adversely affected in Queensland for the month of March, but rebounded swiftly in April. We've already got that data. So as I say, the likelihood is that there will have been some rebound in measured economic activity in the June quarter. We'll see the evidence of that when the June quarter national accounts are released in the first week of September. But more broadly, and going to your question about the longer term growth outcome, Look, I think it's unlikely that Australia will record 3% GDP growth in 2017-18, as the budget papers assumed, and we'll struggle to have four or five years in a row of 3.25% GDP growth as the budget papers project over the medium to longer term. Australia's growth is being constrained not only by the factors I mentioned before in the near term, that is weak growth in household incomes, tighter fiscal policy and hesitation on the part of businesses about investing, together with a reluctance on the part of both household and businesses to take on additional debt, given how much they have already. Uh, But more broadly, and from a longer term perspective, the two major drivers of economic growth in any economy over the longer term are population growth, particularly growth of the working age population and labour productivity growth. Now, while Australia isn't as constrained by our demography as many other Western economies are, nonetheless, the growth rate of our working age population is slowing and that will be a longer term break on how fast our economy can grow. And second, productivity growth has been pretty poor since really the early 2000s, after the peak impact of the reforms of the previous 20 years had begun to wear off. And although reading trends in productivity is complicated by, for example, the effects of the transition in the mining sector from the investment phase to the production and export phase, which we're still seeing working through. The impression one gets is that productivity growth is going to remain a lot lower than it did in the 1990s and early 2000s. Put those two things together and it really is difficult to construct plausible scenarios in which Australia attains growth rates in excess of 3% per annum for any length of time, as the budget papers assume. And then, of course, there are concerns about some other 
areas of the budget forecast, such as the expectation that nominal wages growth will get to three and three quarters percent by 2019-20 and 2020-21, at a time when, according to other forecasts or projections in the budget, the unemployment rate's still expected to be above five percent. That seems probably less plausible than any of the other forecasts in the in the budget. Ironically, the Fair Work Commission's decision in early June to lift the minimum wage by about 3.3%, the largest increase proportionally in more than six years, uh, might help in that regard uh, because about 20 to 25% of the workforce's wages are keyed off decisions about changes in the minimum wage. So that might provide an impetus to wages growth, which will have a more positive impact across the broader economy. And and it's interesting to record that given the criticism that's been made from the business community of that increase. Uh, It might actually be more helpful to the broader economy than the business community appears thus far willing to concede. Well, that's interesting because uh, wages growth is not keeping up with inflation now. Uh, That's right. And uh, for a little while last year, it was and the headline inflation rate was temporarily depressed by falling petrol prices. But they've now started to recover. Consumers know that in most states, there are going to be significant increases in electricity prices from the 1st of July onwards. And if wages continue to grow at less than 2%, then in real terms, uh, wages are likely to be falling. Wages are the biggest single component of household income. Uh, And uh, of course, the government isn't giving tax cuts as it used to at regular intervals between the early 2000s and about 2010. So the headwinds facing consumer spending are likely to remain fairly strong for some time. And overlaying that, of course, is the fact that record levels of household debt are also weighing on many consumers' minds. seems unlikely that we will see any further reductions in interest rates unless the economy is hit by a major unforeseen shock. And as John Fraser said uh, in his appearance before the budget estimates, sometime between now and Armageddon, in truth, obviously somewhat sooner than that, interest rates are more likely to go up. So uh, that's another thing that will be weighing on many households' minds as they think about how much they can afford to spend. And of course, uh, when uh, interest rates go up, it will impact on the massive debt levels. Well, it won't impact on debt per se, but it will interact with the level of debt to push many households into a position where they have to spend more servicing their debts and thus have less available for spending. Now, of course, about two thirds of households with mortgages have been paying down their outstanding principal more quickly than their contract actually obliged to as interest rates have fallen over the past five years. And that does give those households who've been doing that some buffer against any obligation to increase their payments when interest rates rise. But of course, for those households who have taken out new loans since interest rates have been at their record lows or who haven't uh, kept up their repayments as interest rates have come down, then they will feel the impact of any future rise in interest rates in full force. Saul Leslie, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Saul. That was terrific. Thank you so much. How do you read that, Leon? I think Australia's growth prospects are very, very limited going forward, as Saul says. I mean, I think we're going to be lucky if we get anywhere near 3% projected by Treasury. I think that's so. It's starting to make a post-Brexit Britain look better than us. Okay, now the news.
Well, Gary, the pound is under massive downward pressure with Theresa May trying to cobble together a government and questions about the future of Brexit. The pound slumped after May's Conservative Party lost its parliamentary majority in Thursday's election. After the election, it fell 1.7%, its biggest one-day fall in eight months. Since then, the Conservatives announced they'd done a deal with Northern Ireland's Democrat Unionist Party only to admit they hadn't. There are now questions whether the result will have an impact on a hard Brexit, affecting the pound's trajectory. Simon Derrick, chief market strategist of BMY Mellon, said in a note to clients that the pound had performed well when there was a minority government in 1974, 1977-78, and 1996-97. But back then, he said, there was no Brexit. A potential rethink on the UK's Brexit stance could limit downside for the pound, at least for now. However, not even the rising odds of a soft Brexit have been enough to spark positive momentum. And credit ratings agency Moody's and S&P have warned that the UK general election results could delay Brexit talks and be negative for the economy. The Brexit negotiations with the EU were due to start on the 19th of June, but Moody's said the fact that the Conservatives have lost their majority would delay the start of the talks. It said this will complicate and probably delay Brexit negotiations, and it warns that uh, this would put further pressure on the UK's public finances. It says the inconclusive outcome of the general election could mean the government places less of a priority on cutting the budget deficit, and that would be negative for the UK's credit rating and make it more expensive for the country to borrow money. And as a result, Moody's expected fiscal risks to increase because in its view, the budget deficit will increase this year and next. So summing it up, uncertainty increases and that's about the only forward movement. That's right. That's right. But both France and Germany have suggested that Britain can stay in the European Union if it decides no longer it wants to leave the bloc, or at least up until the end of the negotiations. In his first public comment since the UK election, German Finance Minister Wolfgang Schäuble said he'd talked to Chancellor Philip Hammond the day after the vote. The key, he said, was, we have to leave them some days to decide on the way forward. And his quote is, it's up to the British government to take their own decisions. And he told that to Bloomberg's G20 Germany, Dave. We take the decision as a matter of respect. But if they wanted to change their decision, of course, they would find open doors. Although he said it's not very likely the UK will reverse last year's referendum decision, he pointed to the pro-European groundswell in France and the pro-EU youth vote for the Labour Party in Britain. And French President Emmanuel Macron extended the invitation in a joint news conference with UK PM Theresa May. And he said the UK can stay in the EU at least until the Brexit negotiations were concluded. Yeah, and the sole thing that's stopping that, uh, in fact, it started it as well, is uh, immigration. So let's just see where that plays out. I mean, Theresa May has indicated they're continuing with Brexit, but it's going to be a lot more complicated. And I noticed David Cameron now is warning Theresa May about doing a hard Brexit. They just have to work out the whole thing again. I think so. Anyway, to Australia, and business conditions have eased back and confidence is lower, according to the latest National Australia Bank business survey. The survey showed NAB's business conditions index falling one point to 12 points in May from April, and business confidence dropped six points, six points in May to seven index points. The survey comes in the wake of GDP data last week showing that Australia's economy grew only by one third of 1% or 0.3%, with many economists expressing concern about growth levels, and we heard about that before from Saul Leslake. 
Also, Australians are less confident in the economy after last week's figures showing the economy grew by less than one-third of one percent over the quarter. The latest ANZ Roy Moore Consumer Confidence Index figures show consumer confidence flatlined at 112.9, but the sub-index figures show household expectations of current economic conditions dropped a sharp 5.2%, almost entirely unwinding gains made over the last three weeks, and views towards future economic conditions dropped 2.6%, following the 3.2% fall the previous week. So the growth figures are not doing consumer confidence a lot of good. One of the things I'd like to see is a better analysis of why there's a lack of confidence. You can look at the parliament causing it, you can look at unemployment, part-time employment, but I'd just like to see a proper analysis of why it's like it is. We've got real issues, yeah. Other important news is that Deputy ATO Commissioner Michael Cranston has resigned after being formally charged in connection with $130 million fraud. Mr Cranston is not alleged to have known about the fraud, but is accused of using his position to help his son Adam, who's being investigated over the matter. The Deputy Commissioner was earlier suspended, but has now chosen to resign, and that's effective immediately. He is the 11th person to be charged in connection to the alleged syndicate, which is accused of using taxpayers' money to fund lavish lifestyles. And most of the group was charged on May the 17th after a dramatic day of arrests across Sydney. Michael Cranston was among the nation's most senior public servants. He rubbed shoulders with Prime Ministers as part of his role clamping down on tax avoidance. He'd been in the ATO for more than three decades and was involved in the organisation's private groups and high wealth segment. Now, I have to ask you, Gary, this guy has resigned after he was formally charge in connection with a $130 million fraud. What do you have to do to get sacked from the ATO? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good idea. Uh, maybe there's a price limit, you know, it could go up to 300 mil before, you, before we think about it. Yeah, I, I just think it's extraordinary that he had to resign. That he was allowed to resign. That's right. There he is holding that huge responsibility and is gabbling around it like a fishwife. That- Now, other important news is CPA Australia. It's lost its fourth director with the resignation of David Spong, intensifying the crisis of the administration of Chief Executive Alex Maley. Mr Spong's resignation comes days after independent directors Richard Alston, the federal president of the Liberal Party, and lawyer Kerry Ryan resigned from the board. President and Sydney University Registrar Tyrone Carlin stepped down two weeks ago, and their resignations coincides with reports that they were angry their fellow directors had refused to back an independent inquiry into the way the organisation is run, placing pressure on Mr Maley to quit. Now, with one third of its board departing in the past two weeks, the remaining eight members of the CPA Australia board uh, have met this week, two weeks ahead of schedule, and they have announced that there'll be a big announcement on Friday, but no details have been given. Now, this crisis comes after a series of stories in the Australian Financial Review highlighting the problems and issues about the way organisation operates under the reign of Mr. Maley. And Mrs. Spong, the Chief Financial Officer at Telco Equipment Company Ericsson Australia, told the Australian Financial Review his resignation was, quote, particularly difficult, but was one that I have made after much consideration. And he said there needed to be a review of the organisation's governance framework and its execution. He said the board had to ensure that this occurs on a regular and timely basis. And the only thing they're not saying is offering a thought on the future of Mr. Malley. That's right. And I would say that's looking increasingly problematic. Now, a heated 
party room meeting over the government's plans to introduce a clean energy target has left the coalition's position on a CET unresolved. While the CET has the support of senior ministers and conservatives, it ran into a barrage of questions from the backbench led by former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who'd preempted the decision discussion by going on radio on the Monday and declaring that the clean energy target was, in his words, effectively a tax on coal. The meeting lasted three hours, following a presentation from Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg, who's expected to finalise the coalition's position at the end of July. Now, prior to the special party room meeting, Mr Frydenberg had taken the Chief Scientist Alan Finkel to brief brief the backbench energy committee in an attempt to head off dissent. Now, at this special meeting, it's understood one-third of the MPs who spoke up had misgivings about the CET, but a handful came out supporting the policy. One of the principal concerns was a smaller role that coal would play in the CET's energy mix. Some were also concerned the CET was so similar to Labor's policy that if the coalition would lose any edge, it had over the ALP. Victorian Liberal moderate Russell Broadbent said the policy change would push up power prices when the government had been arguing that Labor's renewable energy policies were forcing up power prices. Now, Mr Frydenberg rejected suggestions of a backbench revolt. He said MPs were concerned about the impact on power prices and the future of coal and that it would take some time for the coalition to finalise its policy. But it's messy. It's terribly messy, partly, well, mainly because not about energy or coal or anything at all. It's about who's going to get in the big house in Kirribilli. It's about Tony Abbott's leadership ambitions. Because it worked for him last time to get rid of Malcolm Turnbull and he's looking at doing it again. Yeah, and he's prepared to wreck the Australian economy just to get a seat. Uh, you know, how crass, it's almost criminal really, but it isn't of course, but you know, the public looks at this and wonders what the heck's going on in Canberra. What we really need, Gary, is a bipartisan policy on renewables. New Zealand has it. New Zealand gets 80% of its electricity from renewables. No, it's no, not 80, it's 98. 98 now? Yeah. That's amazing. They, they no longer have coal. And they're building wind and solar and any other way they can go. And that should be our model. But the New Zealanders do it with a bipartisan approach to this sort of issue. Yeah, everybody looks, asks the scientists, what's the next step? They look at it, they say, well, sounds good to us, let's go. And Germany's the same. I mean, the, the Minerals Council is talking about Germany's building coal-fired power stations. Where did they get that idea? That's not true at all. Germany Germany's one of the leaders in solar energy, and it doesn't even have any sunshine. No, 85% comes from renewables in Germany, and we're arguing about 40 Now, finally, Gary, Channel 10's future is up in the air with it going into voluntary administration after its billionaire shareholders told it on the weekend they'd no longer guarantee a key loan. And the TV broadcaster has appointed Cordamenta as voluntary administrators of the company and its subsidiaries. And having lost the support of billionaire backers Lachlan and Murdoch and regional TV network owner Bruce Gordon, uh, network said it left the directors with no choice but to appoint administrators. Now, Murdoch uh, and Gordon are guarantors on the existing $200 million facility for 10 from the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, which is due to expire and to be repaid in December. But at the same time, Gordon and Murdoch are forming a joint venture to restructure Network 10, which could result in the pair taking the broadcaster private. And this is if Communications Minister Mitch Fifield can pressure Labor the Greens or the crossbench to pass changes to media ship ownership regulations, which are up in Parliament this week. 
and uh, Mr. Murdoch and Mr. Gordon are planning together to work together. They own 7.7% and 15% respectively. So they control about close to a quarter of TEN's shareholder base, and they're proposing a restructure that could see TEN's lo- existing loan repaid. Yeah, and uh, TEN would go into private ownership, and uh, you know everybody in the forest would be happy again. That's assuming, though, that the government gets its media regulations through Parliament. Difficult to see either side opposing these powerful media companies. It'll be it'll be very interesting to watch. But anyway, that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we've got a fantastic interview with uh, manufacturer Adrian Bowden. He's going to be talking to us all about energy and renewables. Saying that our whole industrial outlook depends upon the parliament finding its brains again over energy. And that's it for us this week. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. We look forward to talking to you next week.